8. We had now 28 francs in hand and could start looking for work once more. Morris was still sleeping on some mysterious terms at the house of the cobbler, and he managed to borrow another 20 francs from a Russian friend. He had friends, mostly ex-officers like himself, here and there all over Paris. Some were waiters or dishwashers, and some drove taxis, and a few lived on women. Some had managed to bring money away from Russia and owned garages and dancing halls. In general, the Russian refugees in Paris were hard-working people and had put up with their bad luck far better than one can imagine Englishmen of the same class doing. There were exceptions, of course. Boris told me of an exiled Russian duke whom he'd once met who frequently had expensive restaurant bills. The duke would find out if there was a Russian officer amongst the waiters, and after he'd dined, call him in a friendly way to his table. Ah, the duke would say, so you are an old soldier like myself, and these are bad days, eh? Well, well, the Russian soldier fears nothing. And what is your regiment? The so-and-so, sir, the waiter would reply. Very gallant regiment. I expected them in 1912. By the way, I have unfortunately left my note-case at home. A Russian officer will have, you know, oblige me with 300 francs. If the waiter had 300 francs, he would hand it over. And, of course, never see it again. The Duke made quite a lot in this way. Probably the waiters did not mind being swindled. A Duke is a Duke, even in exile. It was through one of these Russian refugees that Boris heard of something that seemed to promise money. Two days after we'd pawned the overcoats, Boris said to me rather mysteriously, Ah, uh, tell me, uh, mon ami, have you uh, any political opinions? No, I said. Ah, neither have I. Of course, one always is a patriot, but still. Did not Moses say something about spoiling the Egyptians? As an Englishman, you will have read the Bible. What I mean is, would you object to earning money from uh, communists? No, of course not. Well, uh, it appears that there is a Russian secret society in Paris who might might do something for us. They are communists. In fact, they are agents from the Bolsheviks. They act as a friendly society, get in touch with exiled Russians and such like, and try to get them to turn back to com to uh, Bolshevik. My friend has joined their society. He thinks that they would help us if we went to them. And what can they do for us? In any case, they won't help me because I'm not a Russian. Ah, that is just the point. It seems that we are correspondents for a Moscow paper, and they want some articles on English politics, and if we go to them at once, they may commission you to write the articles. Me? <laughs> I don't know anything about politics. Mad, neither do they. Who does any know anything about politics? It's easy. All you have to do is to copy it out of the English papers. Is there a Paris Daily Mail? Well, copy it from that. But the, uh, the Daily Mail is a conservative paper. They loathe the communists. Well, say the opposite of what the Daily Mail says, then. 
Now, you can't be wrong. We mustn't throw this chance away, mon ami. It might mean hundreds of francs. Well, I didn't at all like the idea, for the Paris police are very hard on communists, especially if they're foreigners, and I was already under suspicion. Some months before, we did directive... A detective had come to me out of the office of the Communist Weekly Paper, and I had a great deal of trouble with the police. If they taught me going to this secret society, well, it could mean deportation. However, the chance seemed too good to miss, and that afternoon, Boris's friend, who was another waiter, came to take us to the rendezvous. I can't remember the name of the street. It was a shabby street running south from the Seine Bank, somewhere near the Chambre of Deputies. But uh, Boris's friend insisted on great caution. We loitered casually down the street and marked the doorway where we were to enter. It was a laundry. And then we strolled back again, keeping an eye on all the windows and all the cafes. If the place were known as a haunt to communists, it was probably watched. And we intended to go home if we saw anyone at all like a detective. I was frightened, but Boris enjoyed these conspiratorial proceedings, and he quite forgot that he was about to trade with the slayers of his parents. When we were certain that the coast was clear, we dived quickly into the doorway. In the laundry was a Frenchwoman ironing clothes, who told us that the Russian gentleman lived up a staircase across the courtyard. We went up several flights of dark stairs, and emerged onto a landing. A strong, uh, surly-looking young man with hair growing low on his head was standing at the top of the stairs. As I came up, he looked at me suspiciously, barring the way with his arm, and said something in Russian. Matda, he said simply that I didn't answer. I stopped, startled. I'd not expected passwords. Matdorda, repeated the Russian. Boris's friend, who had been walking behind, now came forward and said something in Russian, either the password or an explanation. And at this, the surly young man seemed satisfied and led us into a small shabby room with frosted windows. It was like a very poverty-stricken office with propaganda posters in Russian lettering and a huge, crude picture of Lenin tacked on the walls. At the table sat an unshaven Russian in shirt-sleeves, addressing newspaper wrappers from a pile in front of him. As I came in, he spoke to me in French, with a bad accent. "'This is uh, very careless,' he exclaimed thusly. "'Why have you come here without a parcel of washing?' "'Washing?' "'Everybody who comes here must bring washing.' It looks as though they were going to the laundry downstairs. Bring a good bundle next time. We don't want the police on our tracks. This was even more conspiratorial than I'd expected. Boris sat down in the only vacant chair, and there was a great deal of talking in Russian. Only the unshaved man talked. The surly one leaned against the wall with his eyes on me, as though he still suspected me. It was queer standing in the little secret room with his revolutionary posters, listening to a conversation of which I did not understand a word. 
The Russians talked quickly and eagerly, with smiles and shrugs of the shoulders. I wondered what it was all about. They would be calling each other Little Father, I thought, and Little Dove and Ivan Alexandrovich, like the characters in Russian novels. And the talk would be of revolutions. The unshaved man would be saying firmly, We never argue. Controversy is a bourgeois pastime. Deeds are our arguments. And then I gathered that it was not this exactly. Twenty francs was being demanded for an entrance fee, apparently, and Boris was promising to pay it. We just had seventeen francs in the world, that was all. And finally Boris produced our precious store of money and paid five francs on account. At this the surly man looked less suspicious, and he sat down on the edge of the table. The unshaven one began to question me in French, making notes on a slip of paper. Was I a communist? he asked. By sympathy, I answered. I'd never joined any organisation. Did I understand the political situation in England? Oh, of course, of course. I mentioned the names of various ministers and made some contemptuous remarks about the Labour Party. And uh, what about Le Sport? Could I do articles on Le Sport? Football and socialism of some mysterious connection on the continent. Oh, of course, again. Both men nodded gravely. And the unshaven one said, Evidemment, you have a thorough knowledge of conditions in England. Could you undertake to write a series of articles for a Moscow weekly paper? We will give you the particulars. Well, certainly. Then, Comrade, you will hear from us by the first post tomorrow, or possibly the second post. Our rate of pay is 150 francs an article. Remember to bring a parcel of washing next time you come. Au revoir, comrade. We went downstairs, looked carefully out of the laundry to see that there was no one in the street, and then we slipped out. Boris was wild with joy. In a sort of sacrificial ecstasy, he rushed into the nearest tobacconist and spent fifty centimes on a cigar. He came out, thumping his stick on the pavement and beaming. At last, at last, now, mon ami, our fortune really is made. You took them in finally. Did you hear him call you, comrade? A hundred and fifty francs an article. Nom de Dieu! What luck! Next morning, when I heard the postman rushing down to the bistro for my letter, to my disappointment, it had not come. I stayed at home for the second post. Still no letter. When the three days had gone by, and I had not heard from the secret society, we gave up hope, deciding that they must have found somebody else to do their articles. Ten days later... We made another visit to the office of the Secret Society, taking care to bring a parcel that looked like washing. And the Secret Society had vanished. The woman in the laundry knew nothing. She simply said that Saint-Messieurs had left some days ago after trouble about the rent. What fools we looked, standing there with our parcel, but it was a consolation that we had paid only five francs instead of the twenty demanded.
and that was the last we'd ever heard of the secret society. Who or what they really were? Well, nobody knew. Personally, I do not think that it had anything to do with the Communist Party. I think they were simply swindlers who preyed upon Russian refugees by extracting entrance fees to an imaginary society. It was quite safe, and no doubt they're still doing it in some other city. They were clever fellows, and they played their part admirably. Their office looked exactly as a secret communist office should look. And as for that touch about bringing a parcel of washing, <laughs> pure genius.'